Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences' next-gen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences' patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash signal sciences. By connecting to your code repository, Actrix generates a topology across your full stack to reveal risks so that you can harden your architecture. It also scans code for violations against compliance and security standards to enforce best practices. In addition, Actrix develops threat models using vulnerability feeds, IAM privileges, and other data to predict potential breach paths. Learn how easy it is to get started with Acurix at securityweekly.com forward slash Acurix. Discover a simple way to secure your app without the need for a full security team. With trusted software, simply drag and drop your app and let the ML-enabled smart security work. Get it back fully protected within a couple of minutes. With 50 years of security expertise, Erdetto protects over 5 billion devices and applications for some of the world's best-known brands. Change the world one app at a time. To download the white paper on how to address endpoint security in mobile apps, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Erdetto. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman and John Kinsella. Visit securityweekly.com slash webcasts to see what we have coming up. Learn about Rapid7's findings from the National Internet Cloud Exposure Report on August 13th, and how to create and run a conference from the geniuses behind Layer 8 Conference and Wild West Hackenfest on August 19th. Or just visit securityweekly.com slash on-demand to view our previously recorded webcasts. And that brings us to a quite an eventful news week in the sense of a big boot uh, to the head for many, unfortunately, uh, uh, infrastructure admins, perhaps. Um, Eclipsium released some, some really cool research um, that they called, uh, there's a hole in the boot, boot hole uh, vulnerability, which is, yes, vuln branding continues. Um, and in this case, wanted to highlight it as we'll talk a little bit about what the, the technical aspects of it are. But in general, it's a great write-up that gives a great background on this bootloader technology. Uh, it puts the vuln into context, always an important thing. Thing because I want to talk about threat modeling later. It describes exactly what the vuln is. It gets into some actually really good um, C codes, some good technical details. And it even, lo and behold, provides useful recommendations as well as a couple warnings about um, both uh, what some of the Linux distros and what some Microsoft users have run into in terms of rebooting systems. Um, so that, that's a bit of the preview. I want to uh, throw over to uh, John and Matt to see uh, if either of you have something really exciting that you wanted to glom onto about this. Well, this is our second uh, boot vulnerability in the last two weeks, right? We were talking through, what was it, the LG devices last week. Uh, so mm -hmm. here's another one, this one affecting Linux systems, where there's vulnerabilities in, in the boot um, uh, the bootloader processes, right? Which I, I thought was interesting. We'll actually have Eclipsium on, I think, on Wednesday night for Enterprise Security Weekly this week. John Lucatus from Eclipsium is going to come on. I don't know if he's going to talk about this specifically, um, but it's it's interesting that Eclipsium found this bug uh, in the in the bootloader. No, it's neat. And there's it's, a couple things. Oh, go ahead, John. I keep cutting you off. Sorry. Um, it's uh, it, it's funny to me. I mean, it's 
I still haven't really taken this one in yet. Oh, my video's dropping, sorry. Um, but what was interesting about this to me is like, you know, I've used Grub for, I don't know, way too many years. But it was always sort of funny to me, like, and, you know, I hate saying, oh, I put this seemed funny, but I didn't find the vulnerability, so hey. Um, but, you know, a text file being able to modify your boot process, that fairly easy to edit and run like a command on Linux, and, and there you go. That that seemed not too surprising that it, there was something in there that could find a buffer overflow, but still took folks a while to get it, huh? Yeah, that was neat. So the the, the vulnerability itself is the, the grub.config file. Um, basically, you could create a super long entry, um, pop a buffer overflow, and um, then what was what was funny, not funny about it is that it's going through a flex parser, um, which those of you who ever played with make files and the the ancient technology of um, you know building you know make make config make install uh, triumvirate on Linux systems or Unix systems, um, flex is core to that and a bit um, opaque. But basically, the error everyone's pointing out is that as they identified is that rather than halting execution or exiting, it just prints an error to the console and returns the calling function. So it's like you were so close, you caught the error, but you didn't do anything about it. And then what we have now is the vulnerability that basically breaks the, um, call it the root of trust from, from a secure boot perspective. So rather than a operating system being able to trust that this is the assertion and the signed um, indicator that the hardware it's running on effectively hasn't been tampered with. Its core bootloader, Grub, hasn't been tampered with. So now it can start the operating system, uh, I'll repeat myself, hasn't been tampered with. All of those are very important to be able to establish that root of trust, as I was saying, so that you can also know the, when to dip into a keychain or a key store of some sort. And uh, as Matt uh, reminded us, we talked about this on LG phones, that this idea of a chain of trust during your boot um, is very important for not just the, the ecosystems here, a lot of you know Microsoft Linux ecosystem, but of course in the, the Android and, and iOS ecosystems as well. So the concept while the vulnerability is more specific, the concept is very core to modern, um, you know, modern computing, modern environments. One of the other things that stands out to me, and I know we try not to actually um, do prognostication or look to the for, uh, future too much here, but very early on, the the Vuln write-up says mitigation is going to require new bootloaders to be signed and deployed. Um, and they say, let's see, and take considerable time for organizations to complete patching. So mm -hmm. I, it will be curious there in the sense of this considerable time, will it be an order of magnitude of weeks, months, years, or perhaps even like a decade plus, considering how many hundreds of thousands of systems, if not close to millions perhaps, um, may be deployed throughout very, affected by this throughout various data centers. Well, one thing I liked from the, the Microsoft write-up on it, their mitigation, um, and I quote, warning, modification of the UEFI secure boot configuration may trigger BitLocker recovery. So it's not just, you know, a reboot and, and um, you know, that's a bad enough patch patch sequence, but now you might be having to actually go back and, and do a key recovery on your secure boot as well or your encryption. So, yeah, proceed carefully. Yeah, proceed carefully. And the, and the scary thing here is, is a callback perhaps to our discussion with uh, Mike Rothman in the previous uh, segment, talking to infrastructure folks. If this is requiring reboots in data centers, 
and a system doesn't come back up, suddenly you have something mm-hmm. that's much more impactful to that to the ops time because if a human has to actually go there physically do so, or depending on what kind of virtual, you know, what kind of admin backplane they have, there may be still ways of doing so, but manually rebooting and just figuring out why systems didn't reboot, that's just going to be an extra headache. So not only do we have patch your system, cross your fingers that it comes up, but there's also that extra worry about what happens when it doesn't. Yeah, especially especially these types of patches, right? I mean, this is this is the operating system loading process, right? I mean, anything that goes wrong here could really create a mess. Yes, messiness and messiness. So I will hope that we saw that Heartbleed, there's actually, you know, everyone needed to patch quickly and promptly for that. So even if I might come here with a bit pessimistic and think that the, the full process here for things to be protected from boot hole it may take actually on the order of magnitude years, we do have the occasional counterpoint that two degree impactful volumes can be um, taken care of or reacted to quickly. Um, there are a handful of other volumes I do want to turn to this week. Another one, I do want to briefly revisit twi- the, the Twitter hack, and partially just because it was in the news again that a Florida teen and two other, um, I think 17, 19, and 22 were the ages of the attackers, um, were, were highlighted in, in who was actually responsible for this. But the point I wanted to make here is that um, threat modeling. A lot of times when I've gone and started threat modeling exercises, um, either security folks or even the dev uh, side of folks will start talking about threat actors and start saying, well, is this an organized crime or what are the capabilities that they have access to or what can they do or who is doing the attack? And quite often, that who can actually be really misleading and it doesn't really matter. So if we're talking about mean motivation and opportunity, the motivation isn't necessarily so as important for threat modeling as well as just talk about means. What is the aspect of, you know, how vulnerable are you to various types of phishing focused scenarios? Um, Opportunity, what type of, you know, with COVID and work from home and not following up with visual confirmation of who is requesting a password reset and talking to you over Slack, you know, what kind of opportunities has that introduced? So this is where I just wanted to go on a bit of a rant, bit of a soapbox. If you're doing threat modeling, really diminish that discussion about the threat threat actor, who that actually is, and all the, the subjectivity of who might be attacking, and just focus on perhaps how they're going to attack your system and what is going to be attacked. And I think you'll have much more fruitful discussions for that. Um, because honestly, does it really matter if it's a quote unquote, a, you know, a state actor or a Florida teen attacking your, you know, your system to try to take over accounts? Probably the countermeasures are pretty, there, there's a large overlap in countermeasures in both of them. And that's that I wanted to talk about in, for, for the Twitter today. So Matt, John, not sure if you want to fully put it at rest or if there's anything else you wanted to add there. Doug White and I covered this uh, at, at five o'clock Eastern today. Uh, we actually went into how they found the, the attackers and, and the, the forensics work that was actually done, uh, which was a really also interesting piece of the story of how they found them. Um, so I have no additional comments on your threat modeling though. <laughs> no, but that is good. Yeah. So hopefully everyone goes back and listens to that because, um, I absolutely want, uh, want to say that the forensics and how this was, how this attack was pulled off, well, it was pretty clever. It's pretty interesting. Good, good educational from a, how would you protect against it point of view? 
One other thing, speaking of threat modeling, um, OkCupid also um, was in the news briefly just about, um, again, this was part of a responsible disclosure from, I think, Checkpoint um, Security Research again, just basically saying, yes, they could have, they have, they found a cross-site scripting, which honestly, I will, as an editorial stance, pretty much shrug it. Okay, fine. It was a cross-site scripting. Another but one. They did, <laughs> uh, another one, yes. Um, <clears throat> yawn. But in this case, one thing that did stick out to me was that it was basically cross-site scripting in their web view, and it was showing that um, that they're using the intent or basically the protocol handle rather than be, as I'm getting tongue-tied here, HTTP or HTTPS, it was OkCupid colon slash slash, um, which is just basically saying on Android, for example, in this case, there's an intent to handle those types of handlers. And bad things could happen, you know, as a consequence of any sort of cross-site scripting. So it's more here a reminder that as you're going through these um, threat modeling discussion or just your product security reviews of these applications, you know, talk with your team, what intents are they handling? And are you exposing intentionally or unintentionally capabilities that you didn't anticipate? In this case, just showing how cross-site scripting and the web could get into effectively mobile type of capabilities. Yep, seen these before. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yep. <laughs> so a bit of a reminder there. That's why I don't wanna to focus too much more on the rest of it. What I did wanna yep. focus though is, um, there's this will be a lead into some article to, to some of your articles i think uh matt um there's a an article about sandboxing and workload isolation and um this is a great a great uh, review, if you will, of a little bit of history of different approaches that were taken, starting all the way back to Chirrut and Jailing processes, talking about BSD. Uh, it takes a slight detour even into OpenBSD for um, uh, all of you OpenBSD uh, geeks out there running that system. But then, of course, comes back into talking about um, privilege separation uh, uh, containers, talking about Yes, containers perhaps never used to really be a security boundary, but maybe that has actually changed a little bit the way that we have more modern containers with syscall filtering, et cetera. And all the I way talking that. about to um, emulation and the the kind of the thrust of the article was saying why the you know this the author basically chose to dive into um, uh, Firecracker. Um, and that, that Lambda model, if you will, of um, isolation. But um, John, as our resident container expert um, who, who enjoys many things containers, I'm curious kind of what your take on this is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, it's, um, this, this is someone who's been around the scene for a while and I, I don't think I've ever actually met him, but like, you know, it's, I, I know of him and he's super sharp and he's done some great things. Um, I'm a little, I don't know if I'm jaded or I, I just don't fully drink in the Kool-Aid on this one. I like the conclusion he's coming to, don't get me wrong. Um, but his thoughts around Docker, um, I, I will stick very firmly to Docker is not a uh, security isolation tool. Yes, there's there's concepts in there right now which will allow you to um, do some of these things he's talking about. But that requires configuration and using those things. And um, I think that's the, he went from one, let's just try to find it. He went from one paragraph to another. And yeah, the tools might be there, but ain't nobody using them. I mean, they're still not really well um, supported in Kubernetes. Um, yeah. I, yeah, you know, so there, there's capabilities there. But I think if you just skip down to the end, um, Firecracker, cool. General thoughts are great. I'm still a, a fan of the idea of, of um, nano VMs. Um, 
Hmm. Or if you, it, I mean, it really comes down to take a step back and, and, you know, we had Mike on last hour, Rothman, you know, consultant brain, look at this from a consultancy point of view. And, and I've got a consultancy background, so I do this sometimes too, but like figure out which parts of your application you actually care about being isolated and isolate them, either using a normal VM or a hyper VM or a separate machine or whatever you want. Um, for those things you're not quite as worried about, you know, look at your risk score and, and your risk concepts and threat modeling as, as our Mike here was talking about, um, our, 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 we really care about our loving mic here. Um, but really sort of, you know, figure out what those are. And then based off of that, you you think about which dockers and, and which things you wanted to use in there. Um, well, and that's Mike, not a knock against Docker, right? But right. No, and I mean, yeah. you, you even said it, I think, last segment a little bit. If I put everything as a Lambda function, then I can isolate everything with uh, identity and access controls around each of your Lambda functions. I mean... That's like the nirvana of, of isolation in some respects almost, yeah. right? But how many people really can do that? And I, I was right. thinking about that as as I read through this. Is like, you know, I have still haven't played a ton with serverless. Um, I haven't really got my hands dirty in it. And the question this starts me asking is like, at what part at what point, and you know it's gonna happen, do we finally ditch containers? And, and move on to serverless. And is this a point where I'd say, maybe as I was just saying, that more sensitive code, maybe you don't put it into a VM, maybe you write it as serverless. Um, I, I think it's something worth thinking about. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of the ultimate isolation, potentially, is each function is, is completely separate and isolated um, from, from other pieces. Is that the ultimate isolation mechanism that we yeah. use? It's just, not really, though. At least not right now, right? So usually what happens if you run Lambda on the, the big cloud providers or serverless in the cloud providers, they'll fire up a VM for you and they'll run your functions in that VM. So there's still not really hardcore isolation between different functions. And that'd be interesting to see what type of memory leaks you can have between them. Um, you're, there's probably configuration options to say run these functions on actual separate virtual machines. Mm. Um, but it's still a little, you know, mixy because they care about, you know, end of the day, they're, they they want to maximize their, their efficiency for dollar and um, but Mike, we keep talking over you. No, you're you're making great points because it it does go back to you know I think even this article started out with a reference to QMail and the idea of process mm -hmm. separation as well. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, there's the important thing to also consider here: what are you isolating and what are you protecting against? And a lot of these isolations are saying if this service is compromised, I want to make sure that compromise can't pivot into somewhere else or it can't you know move laterally to use all the terms of art throughout the rest of the cloud environment. Um, and those can be important. And we've even seen you know the, the modern browsers, which are essentially today's operating system is your browser. Nobody needs root. They just want access to your same origin policy. Um, and all of them have broken out your your JavaScript rendering engine is in a separate process from your GUI and a separate process from maybe your HTML from your secret store and so on. Um, so these are very important for protecting against buffer overflows, memory leaks, and so on. But if you still have a couple, you know, easy access to the data stores where the data resides, then that could be that misconfigured S3 bucket, Elasticsearch, et cetera, you know, the isolation is still going to fail you. Or it's not protecting against that. So I think really the point here I'm trying to make is that isolation in, in many of these aspects is going to be very important, but it's not going to be the, the ultimate fix. Then And then everything is, is done and you can go home for the day. And of course, I did want to highlight that, Matt, I, uh, there, there was the, 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 um, 
sentence in here uh, to quote, while not while many of these concerns can be avoided simply by not running as root, not all of them can. So just even with like John with your consultant hat on, the first thing you can say is, well, don't run as root and let us figure out the rest of the story from there. Exactly right. But default configuration for a lot of containers run as root, as Paul knows from the work he was doing with Nginx and, and MediaWiki. I mean, it, he, he had to reverse kind of hack it to, to get it not to run as root. But a lot of this stuff sometimes defaults to run as root. But yeah, I mean, not running at root saves you a lot of headaches too. And to go a tiny bit further on that one, um, some of these things will break pretty badly if you don't let them run as they want to run. Like I've been playing with a, running a Postgres database in a, a container for the last few weeks and um, mounting a volume into there so I don't have to, lo I don't lose my data every time I, I restart the silly thing. Um, and and that's sort of, if, if you don't let it play the way it wants to, um, it's changing the, it drops root and it runs as Postgres within a container. But if you don't let it set up right, as an example, um, it'll change ownership on the, the files from the outside. And next thing you know, you can't access it and you have to go and spend half an hour figuring out why Postgres can't see your data. And um, so, you know, that comes back to some of the points he was making in there around um, the, uh, um, you know, set comp and those type of things. It's They sound great, but actually just getting those things up and running is, uh, you know, it, it, that that's a little bit of an art by itself. Yeah, it goes back to uh, how Mike Rothman put it in the, in the first segment. Are you trying to inflict some security tools onto your dev team? Or can the dev team just kind of use some tools that actually are in their IDE or cloud native or just going to work for them? Yeah. Um, which I think is a, is a way we can segue into um, some articles you highlighted uh, there, Matt, about yeah. Um, AWS. Yeah, it's just a couple interesting articles from AWS. Uh, the first one is they incorporated a lot of the Amazon Macy functionality of looking for misconfigured S3 buckets into guard duty. Uh, so they enhance that functionality, incorporate it into guard duty, and, and it says in here, reduced in cost by over 80%. Um, so I thought it was interesting, right? We talk a lot about S3, exposed S3 buckets and, and the misconfiguration around S3. Guard duty now has capabilities in it to look for these misconfigured exposed S3 buckets. It's a huge uh, breach uh, attack area that, that's been exploited how many times in the news, right? So I thought it was an interesting article to pull out because now they're incorporating this into guard duty, anybody who's using guard duty. Um, and if you're not, you might want to look at it because again, back to Rothman's discussion, if I have a tool like guard duty that's doing some of this checking for me, and I put the right policies in place, now I can make the context of these misconfigurations for the operations folks easier to fix. I, I think guard duty is one of those types of tools that, that fits into the tool belt of these cloud ops folks. But isn't yeah, this more of an IDS? What, guard duty? Yeah, yeah. it's looking for I mean, different... I'm just looking... Yeah, it's looking for different detections against your S3 buckets, so... So VPC flow logs, CloudTrail management event logs, S3 data event logs, DNS logs. So it looks sort of doing log processing. Um, and, and the reason I mentioned that, it looks like it's doing about, what, 10 or 15 different things it's checking for, bucket enumeration, permission modification. It's able to de detect if Kali Linux is scanning your buckets. That's sort of interesting. Um, but I'm going to file it at least personally under just another IDS. I mean, it's an IDS and S3, which I think a lot of people have been looking for for hell years, right? So that's good. 
Um, but still, the output of this thing has to go somewhere, and you have to know what to do with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, you still have to generate alerts and, and stuff off of this. But again, having the native capabilities already by the cloud providers for yeah. a huge attack vector will help operations teams do a better job of making sure their S3 buckets are configured correctly. Mm-hmm. I, I think I that's, do have to, yeah. that's the win. I do have to quickly add in a little bit of snark that you're able to put the the results from guard duty back into S3, and I'm I'm hoping those buckets are secure as well. <laughs> yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> the the um, other Amazon announcement was uh, announcing the new AWS Community Builders program again. It's a great way, it, it, you know, members of the program will receive access to AWS product teams and information about new services and features. Okay, I don't know about you, but keeping up with all the changes in AWS services is a nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. So I think Paul and Marson need to be part of this program as we move our stuff into more and more of our stuff in AWS. Like, I can get announcements of feature updates and new services that I can use. I think there's a benefit right there. Uh, they get mentorship from AWS subject matter experts on various uh, topics, including content creation, et cetera. And you get some promotional credit. So what they're doing here is saying, look, build all your stuff in AWS. We'll give you technical help and resources to tap into so that you can build better stuff in Amazon. So uh, interesting program for anybody that's AWS that might want to take advantage of this. No, absolutely. For for me, it would just help to translate just what this particular far thing is into the like. What does this service do? I think is just what the yeah <laughs> is is what I need from uh, from from AWS. Yeah, don't go to the the solutions page and try to figure out all the different services in AWS. By your, it's luck. oh my gosh, yeah. it's so hard. Yeah. Uh, that. Does bring us to one, one final article I did want to highlight that um, time out from Microsoft, uh, who's moving away from um, uh, basically pulling down all of their binaries that were relying on SHA-1, just to, being signed by SHA-1. Um, and, and the reason, of course, being that it was conjectured at least over a decade ago, if not longer, that SHA-1 was theoretically broken. And then in in the world of cryptography, the, the idea from, or the journey from theoretically to look, it's broken, um, is basically measured in both time and cost. Meaning, look, it's broken in a couple years with a few hundred thousand dollars. Look, is now broken on a Raspberry Pi in an afternoon in this space of time it takes for all of you to listen to an hour's worth of Application Security Weekly. Um, so th- this is a good thing. And I think I wanted to highlight it, though, is sort of a, use this as, as the uh, lesson to, to be learned or the lesson to bring to your DevOps team in the sense of, are you even validating signatures that you're pulling down throughout your supply chain? So, of course, even if you're not using Microsoft, you're probably pulling down um, using PIP for Python, RubyGems, um, Node.js, et cetera. Are you verifying those signatures? Um, and then what happens? Are you verifying just the SHA-1? And what happens in this case if you're relying on Windows components and those signatures go away or those binaries go away? How resilient are you to be able to respond to that? So it's a little bit of a lesson in what is your authorization um, and authentication um, story within your supply chain and how mature are you along that process, along that journey? Yeah, I'm wondering how many people's build processes will break when the SHA-1s come down. 
I mean, I, I would actually be very happy and impressed if, if by those that break, because it at least means that someone was paying attention. Obviously, there would be a little bit of pain to go then unbreak it and make sure to move on to uh, what's next. But um, that's one of those areas that I just don't know. So it's it sort of speaks to that idea of going back to the uh, bootloader that what's the process for patching that? What's your process for, you know, uh, dealing with supply chain changes as well? Yeah. And then, of course, we could also say, how much are do you provide software? That was the other point I wanted to make. Just check my notes. Do you provide software for others? So, are are you providing, you know, verified, you know, signed binaries, and what does that process look like? And are you making it easy? So that would, I guess, the other lesson to take home for the the homework for the week to take to your uh, product security team and your application security team for your DevOps to talk about. Good homework assignments for for the week of Black Hat, or you can just <laughs> hang out and watch more micro interviews from us over the next three days. <laughs> Absolutely. So Matt, any, any, any particular highlights you want to call out about uh, the next couple of days for virtual hacker summer? Camp? I, I mean, just, you know, today was nine micro interviews. Uh, we're bringing on some of the black hat folks that are actually presenting their research paper. So if you want to preview into some of the sessions of black hat, you'll get them over the next three days. Uh, we did a couple today. Uh, so very insightful into Black Hat itself if you really want to kind of figure out which session should I look at at Black Hat. We're also doing a, a bunch of sponsored interviews with, with different sponsors on different product releases and announcements. Uh, so you'll get, there's a ton of information coming over the next three days. Plus we're doing uh, all the all the main live shows uh, in the evening like we are today. We got Business Security Weekly moved to tomorrow then Enterprise and Paul Security Weekly on Wednesday and Thursday. So a lot of content coming out of the Security Weekly crew this week. That's fantastic. We'll be busy. Oh, well, you'll be busy I, for one. Yes. I, I want to correct myself on, on one thing before we hop off the air and we get a bunch of hate mail. So um, looking over the fact for Amazon Lambda, they're saying that uh, each function is actually isolated in its own environment. So um, I'll correct myself now before uh, we get a bunch of hate mail. <laughs> Therefore, it does support maximum isolation each function yeah, in its own like vm it. yeah that's the route to go yes and and we also know that maximum isolation is your wrestler alter ego match so <laughs> just for our listeners <laughs> maximum isolation <laughs> uh, i'd like to thank matt and thank john once again i'd like to thank everyone for joining us enjoy this the next few days of virtual hacker summer camp we'll see you next week on application security weekly